Welcome to What the Health Podcast, where we help you lead a happier and healthier life by offering a wide range of health and wellness news and insights. I'm John Salak, your host. If you like what you hear, be sure to visit our news site at wellwellusa.com and sign up for our weekly news blasts. Now, let's get started with the show. It would be pretty hard to find someone who hasn't heard of the thyroid, which is reassuring since everyone is born with one of these glands. Of course, if you start asking people exactly what a thyroid is, what it does, why it is important to maintain healthy thyroids, you'd probably get a lot of blank stares. That's pretty sad. And also potentially dangerous. Millions of people suffer from either overactive or underactive thyroids. Both conditions can trigger autoimmune diseases that can have severe health consequences. Think heart disease, mental health issues, sexual and reproductive problems, and goiters. Estimates range from 5 to 12% of the population being impacted, and these percentages are believed to be growing for all sorts of reasons. That's the bad news. The good news is that there is greater awareness, testing, and treatment procedures now than ever when it comes to these problems. This is especially welcomed for women who experience these diseases 10 times more often than men. Of course, even with these gains, there's a lot of uncertainty and misconception when it comes to thyroid issues. What are the symptoms, dangers, tests, and treatments? And are there any ways for high-risk groups to lower their chance of contracting one of these diseases? Our next guest is an expert on all these questions, and he's here to provide some answers. Welcome, everybody, to this podcast and our interview today on What the Health. We're grateful to have Dr. Anupam Kotwal. Am I pronouncing that? Yes, doctor. Okay, I got that right. Dr. Cotwall is a member of the American Thyroid Association, and we're going to be talking about thyroid conditions and autoimmune diseases today. And while this is a word that gets bounced around a lot, I don't think a lot of us are aware of just exactly what's at stake, what are the conditions, what causes this. It's sort of a catchphrase. And unfortunately, sometimes people don't realize they're in the middle of something until they're in the middle of it. So that's why we're talking to Dr. Cotwell today. So doctor, what is the thyroid and how is it related to autoimmune diseases? The thyroid gland is a small gland. It's located at the lower part of the neck in the middle, and it produces a thyroid hormone. It uses iodine in the blood to produce thyroid hormone. That's its main function. In terms of autoimmune conditions, so it is very commonly involved in autoimmunity. So the most common condition is called Hashimoto's or autoimmune thyroiditis. But, you know, it's the name is from the person who discovered the condition. And that can lead to underactive thyroid hormone production or so-called hypothyroidism. The other autoimmune condition, which is not as common, is called Graves. Again, based on the name of the person, not to suggest how severe the condition is. Uh, it's called Graves hyperthyroidism. So that's an overactive thyroid gland. And then sometimes there can be like temporary or transient issues. So mild autoimmunity or inflammation of the thyroid gland can occur as well. Hashimoto's, I'm assuming, is obviously the most prominent condition that people will have. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, so the prevalence or how frequently this occurs has been increasing over the years. Now in North America and kind of a Western world, about one in eight to one in 10 individuals will have Hashimoto's. So actually quite common. Not all of them will have a low or underactive thyroid though. 
about half or three-fourths of them may develop underactive thyroid at some point in their life, but it may not happen. So that's Hashimoto's. The overactive autoimmunity, the Graves hyperthyroidism is rare. So it's about one in 20, kind of around that range. And again, both of these are more, the, they're most common in the 40s to 60s age group. So what we call middle age. There are obviously different, if not strange, types of thyroid conditions that are affecting your autoimmune system. What's causing these different strains? Are each condition different or caused by a different thing? And, and exactly how dangerous are they? What causes the thyroid autoimmunity, especially Hashimoto's, there is some familial link. So people may have other family members who have either thyroid autoimmunity or other autoimmune conditions. There is also the environmental aspect. So there has been some link with infections, just general viral infections that can affect the thyroid and make someone predisposed to autoimmunity. There has been some link actually with both deficiency of iodine, which and is not very common now in the Western world, but also excess of iodine. Excess of iodine can predispose or increase the risk of Hashimoto's or thyroid autoimmunity. And then there is this question which is raised about just does general stress or a poor lifestyle or significant stressors that are felt, like an illness that happens, injury that happens, could that increase autoimmunity? We don't know that for sure. So as of now, it's predominantly a mix of a family history and then some either a deficiency or, or excess of iodine. There is also a deficiency of selenium, which is a mineral that is present in, for example, macadamia nuts. So if there is significant deficiency of that, that can increase the risk for autoimmunity as well. How dangerous are these conditions, whether it's Hashimoto's or Graves or one of the other conditions related to this? If they are not diagnosed and treated in a timely manner, then they can be quite dangerous. So, for example, Hashimoto's, which can lead to underactive thyroid, if it's not managed with hormone replacement and not diagnosed timely, it can lead to initially just starting with fatigue, tiredness, feeling too cold maybe gaining some more weight, uh, more sleepiness. So mild things, but can affect quality of life. And then if it continues more than a few months and is not treated, it can lead to slowed heart rate, can affect the blood pressure, can affect concentration and memory. And if it's very severe, which is what we call like myxedema, which people are kind of about to almost go into a coma state. So they're... Um, brain function and heart function are so slowed down that they will need to be admitted and need to get fluids and thyroid hormone and support and things like that. Usually that's seen if it's months or years of untreated, underactive thyroid gland. On the other hand, overactive thyroid gland, which can happen with the Graves autoimmunity, kind of think of it as the opposite of underactive. So everything is a little bit fast, fast heart rate, feeling too hot, mm -hmm. too sweaty, some tremors or shakiness. Uh, but again, if it's severe and not treated initially, it can lead to irregular heart rhythm or things like atrial fibrillation, increase the risk of stroke, increase blood pressure, and can also lead to kind of a severe emergency-like scenario in that case. So both under or over active thyroid I would say if they are not timely diagnosed and managed, 
start with some mild issues and then can become fairly severe in that case. It sounds like a lot of people may have a thyroid condition and they're unaware of it. Is that fair to say? I mean, is it obvious if you have a condition short of going to a doctor and maybe them spotting it? Yeah, so that's the issue. With the symptoms can be quite nonspecific. So as I was saying, tiredness, feeling more sleepy. I mean, that can happen from other issues. Sometimes it's a deficiency of vitamins, poor sleep, iron deficiency. So the symptoms may not be very specific. Now, if there's a mix of symptoms, if someone has feeling more cold, more tired, more sleepy, constipated, all of those going on, that would likely point toward underactive as opposed to some other issues. And that's why we say keep at least your annual appointments with your primary care, even if you think you're the healthiest person and are doing everything else perfectly. Because those visits will include these questions. If there is concern for tiredness or, or symptoms like this, then a healthcare provider would usually check a thyroid function test and do that evaluation. The other how, question how, comes... Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. The other question. Go ahead, please. Just, keep going. And then in terms of I get asked, like, can patients feel something? Is there going to be a lump or an enlargement? Usually... The lump comes way later, so like an enlargement of a thyroid, which we call goiter in colloquial terms. It can happen with Hashimoto. It's more common with iodine deficiency. So now again, North America and most of the world now, iodine deficiency is going away because of supplementation. So now if someone has a goiter, it may be over or underactive, can be from autoimmune conditions. So yeah, if a patient actually feels their neck and they're like, I feel a lump in the neck, that could also suggest they have abnormal hormone level and need to be evaluated for that. Earlier, you had mentioned the fact that these conditions seem to be rising. What's the reason for the rise in these conditions? That's a good question. And the answer is, it's not clear. So, for example, the, in the 1990s, about 5 to 6% of people in the U.S. Uh, uh, had Hashimoto's. And this is a study using the National Health Database. And in 2010, 2012, it rose to 10%. And in 2019, it was like 12% of people had Hashimoto. Some of it is just better detection and better diagnosis and better healthcare, right? So we are more, there's more awareness, both from the medical community as well as general non-medical community about these conditions. So people will be more likely to ask for testing or be aware of their symptoms there has been some rise in autoimmune conditions in general. So, for example, rheumatoid arthritis or autoimmune kind of joint or skin issues. There has been a link with lifestyle. So we do know that poor diet and kind of more sedentary and poor lifestyle may increase generalized autoimmunity. It's very tough to give a clear answer here because, again, there's so many things that can affect it. There has been a rise in weight gain and obesity, and so there has been some suggestion that could these be linked to increased autoimmunity in general. It's hard to say for sure, but I, I think it's a mix of all of these things. What's clear is at least the number of people being identified with these diseases is on the rise for probably a combination of reasons, both better diagnosis and earlier detection, and probably some societal or personal reasons. Women 
are more impacted than men by these diseases. And I think it's a rate of three to one. Is that correct? And, and why do we think it's so? Yes, absolutely. So three to five to one, depending on what condition we talk about. So the autoimmune, both over and underactive, again, about three to five times more in women than men. And again, this discrepancy increases as the age goes up to 50s or 60s. There is this question of different immune makeup. So women do have a different immune system than men in general. And estrogen, which predominant reproductive hormone in women, has been linked with that. So it could be that they're just prone to more autoimmunity. Women are also more likely to have autoimmune rheumatoid arthritis or autoimmune skin issues and things like that. So one is that this general autoimmunity is more because of immune changes, and that leads to more thyroid hormone conditions. We know that women do seek health care more commonly than men. And so some of it also is that if they're more involved in their health, they are more likely to be diagnosed and earlier diagnosed, which then brings us to the point of increasing awareness about this condition. And then the third possibility is linked with body habitus. In general, it's easier to feel the thyroid gland in women than in men. Kind of muscles and tissue will more likely overlap the thyroid. So women are more likely to have thyroid enlargement that is felt, which again increases the chance that they'll get a hormone test or evaluation as compared to men. So as of now, these are the reasons that we know of. Are there other demographic groups that are disproportionately at risk? We talk about inequities and disparities in thyroid diseases. So the autoimmunity affects Caucasians most commonly, not only thyroid, but other autoimmune conditions as well. How much of that is an actual connection and how much of that is better healthcare utilization? We think there is a link there. It was shown that people living far away from major medical centers or rural populations or minorities, even if they are in inner cities, are likely to be diagnosed with it later and when it's more severe. And some of it is linked to just how they are interacting with the healthcare system. The data kind of gets affected by those factors. It's hard to say if there is an actual increased risk in uh, a certain population, or is it just that some have better access to healthcare? But it has been shown that poor access to healthcare, delayed access to healthcare, whether it's from location or income, is linked with delayed diagnosis and Right now, they may show some lower rates of these conditions. And that would be true for so many other conditions as well. If you have poor access to health care, you're going to be at greater risk of more serious consequences for any disease that you're facing. It seems to be an older person's disease. And you mentioned that you see a higher level of these conditions in older people. Can children and young adults also suffer from the, these sort of diseases? Do we see that happening? Is that increasing in any way if it is happening? It is most common in kind of that middle age. And I try not to call older persons. It's also that our, you know, our longevity is improving. So 50s and 60s, you know, a few years ago would be called that. And now that's kind of young, actually. So it can affect adolescents and children. 
the highest frequency is in women in their 50s and 60s but it affects men it affects adolescents as well uh, young adults usually the autoimmunity will start after the age of like early adolescence so prior to that children if they have thyroid hormone issues we actually start thinking of congenital or birth related issues that will happen at the time or soon after birth and some of those can be temporary and become normal so the just general autoimmunity starts kind of around age 10 11 not earlier than that but adolescent time or early adulthood which again it's tough because that's the group which may not be as involved in their health because they have so many other things going on can go undiagnosed and for example if we don't start thyroid hormone appropriately they can have all the issues that we discussed earlier along with growth retardation or so delayed or decreased attainment of height and appropriate weight if this condition is not uh, diagnosed and managed both under as well as overactive so i guess a tidbit i i mean i was diagnosed with hashimotos or autoimmune hypothyroidism in high school and it involved some of initial testing and monitoring and then the doctor finally saying that you will need to start thyroid hormone because it's not a, the hormone function is not recovering so so definitely can happen across all age spectrum even though it's most common in a specific age group is that how you got into this field specifically because of your own condition or exposure to the situation yeah i think it was partly exposure to the medical system and then trying to learn about autoimmune thyroid and other conditions I kind of corresponded with when I was looking into what field I wanted to get into so I think it played a small role you referenced some relation to weight earlier is is that a correct perception that thyroid condition can lead to someone having weight issues I get asked this from patients pretty much every day so underactive thyroid hypothyroidism if not treated for a few months can lead to decreased metabolism so slowed metabolism which will lead to increased weight also lead to fatigue so people are less likely to be active and things like that it can also lead to some fluid retention uh, which will come with some increase in weight or puffiness it usually does not lead to severe weight gain so if we see that in a patient or in an individual we also want to think of other factors that can be going on so if someone presents with unclear weight loss we do the thyroid function test to make sure whether they are under or overactive but keeping in mind that we don't want to hang our hats just on the thyroid and not miss other issues sleep issues other metabolic there's actually some other hormone conditions for example too much cortisol uh, which can lead to excess weight and things like that so we look at some other hormone and other issues because severe increase in weight it's hard to explain only from the thyroid uh, the we have the benefit of checking the hormone levels and if they're off we can confirm them and, and treat the patient once we normalize the thyroid if there was some weight gain from it it, it usually improves so that would be a bit of a misconception if if somebody is overweight it's simply a thyroid issue it may be many more things than that that is correct and we do know that significant overweight obesity is associated with temporary alteration in thyroid function and if people lose weight say from other way like 
healthy ways, the thyroid hormone actually starts becoming normal. So I've had a situation with patients where we were unclear, we started some thyroid hormone, and the patient actually lost weight, and it looked like they didn't really need to be on the thyroid hormone anymore. It would harm them if we give it because their levels became normal. What happens once someone has a condition? What are the steps? What are the treatments? What are the remedies? Treatment for underactive thyroid is giving the patient thyroid hormone. It comes as a pill. The most common formulation is called levothyroxine. There's different brands of it. It's taken as a once-a-day pill in the morning, ideally on an empty stomach. And usually that treatment works for most people. There are some cases where absorption may not be well, or if someone's taking medicines for stomach acidity or ulcer, it can decrease the absorption. In those cases, we sometimes give gel capsules. So the capsule doesn't really require to be broken down by stomach acid. So the absorption is better. And again, most people do well with either of these formulations. Uh, there is a subset where, for example, patient, especially patients who've had their whole thyroid taken out from surgery or have significant hypothyroidism, that we've been giving them levothyroxine for a few months, and even with normal levels, they feel poorly. And that could include uh, fatigue, mental fogginess, or trouble with concentrating, maybe some weight gain despite normal tests. And that's when we question, are they getting adequate treatment just with levothyroxine? That's the group where we try and add on T3. So that's another hormone that thyroid produces in a very small amount. Most of the T3 in our body comes from the levothyroxine or T4 that gets converted to T3 in tissues. But there is a subset of individuals that are not converting that in the best manner. Currently, there is no good test to know who this individual will be. So we base it on how the patient's feeling and how their tests are. So if someone has been on levothyroxine, they have their whole thyroid is either removed or destroyed from autoimmunity, and they feel poorly. And we've ruled out other causes. So we would want to make sure we ruled out vitamin D deficiency. We ruled out poor sleep and sleep apnea, iron deficiency. We give it in a manner where we will mimic what the human thyroid would produce. So it produces mostly T4 and then a little bit of T3. We will evaluate what happens in six months to eight months. If patients feel much better with this and their hormones are well controlled, then we say, well, you probably were one of those people who had some issue with this conversion. The frequency of that is anywhere from 5 to 15%. So most people will not need this combination, but we do it on a case-by-case basis for, for some patients. It sounds like for the vast majority of people, the treatment is pretty straightforward and usually fairly effective. Is, is that a fair? That is absolutely correct, yes. And how long would the treatment go on for those people? You mentioned pills and gel tablets. Is it months? Is it years? Indefinite? It's usually indefinite in autoimmune hypothyroidism, except there are groups. So individuals older than 65 can sometimes have just mild or temporary changes in their TSH or thyroid function that uh, sometimes is just normal for them and it may recover. There's also sometimes temporary changes after delivery. So we call it post-pregnancy thyroiditis. Sometimes there are temporary changes from inflammation of thyroid gland. So 
some of those issues and usually in those cases we may just watch but if someone gets started on thyroid hormone and they're on a very tiny dose we can consider taking them off the typical hashimoto's thyroiditis once someone becomes deficient in the hormone they either will stay this way or they will progress it's very unlikely that they'll revert back to normal one point is that uh, the autoimmunity is kind of on a spectrum so while most patients become underactive there are some that become overactive and there are some people who flip between the two so i actually have patients who become underactive and then they develop this different kind of antibody or autoimmunity where their gland becomes overactive and sometimes if we are struggling to deal with it we may actually consider removing or destroying the thyroid gland so we can actually treat the patient with a steady dose but most people if they had clear diagnosis of hashimoto clearly low thyroid hormone we say it's usually a lifelong replacement what about the test itself is it a simple test to take is it involved is it like any other normal test it's fairly straightforward we recommend getting it done in the morning and ideally in a fasting state like overnight fast so it's a blood test and that's pretty straightforward Are there precautions individuals can take to sort of lower their risk of developing these conditions? There could be things that we can do to reduce our risk of autoimmunity. So healthy diet, healthy lifestyle. As I mentioned earlier, a deficiency of selenium can increase the risk of thyroid autoimmunity. Fortunately, again in America, most of the developed world, selenium deficiency is rare. So right it's not been found that excess taking more selenium will prevent it but if someone's kind of on some weird diet that they cut out a lot of foods maybe they should go to a more regular diet or have some macadamia nuts here and there uh, but again that's a rare deficiency in the US we can also get a selenium supplement over the counter if necessary we recommend getting screened for other autoimmune conditions so if someone has one autoimmune condition say rheumatoid arthritis or type 1 diabetes autoimmune psoriasis they're at risk of other autoimmune conditions so they probably will need more involvement of their medical care team to make sure they are being tested appropriately outside of that we also get asked of diets there's this uh, substance called goitrogen which can decrease the thyroid hormone production now for example if we eat uncooked cabbage or bok choy tremendous amounts you we really have to go out of our way to be able to do that that can lead to decreased thyroid hormone production fortunately the cooked form and the amounts that people would usually eat in their diet do not do that so that's just one thing i do inform patients now once someone does have thyroid autoimmunity and is taking thyroid hormone there are things they can probably do to make sure their absorption is good of the pill and those things so that's where gluten or celiac issue comes in someone has intolerance to gluten which is also autoimmune condition and more likely to happen with hashimoto that can sometimes affect the absorption of thyroid hormone pill we've seen that and that again then leads us to make sure they have appropriate testing and confirmation to rule out celiac or gluten insensitivity i've heard from patients as well as kind of just in talking to people in the community 
that sometimes decreasing gluten will make them feel better or cutting it out may will make them feel better. Right. If it does, I think that's great. Right now, there is no clear evidence to say that cutting gluten out in someone who doesn't have celiac will will help the thyroid. Uh, but it may make us feel better in general. So I, I'm not against that. I think I see my role as making sure the patient, the general community is aware of what are the risks and benefit. You don't want to miss an undiagnosed condition. For example, if you clearly have low thyroid hormone and autoimmunity, and if you're you need thyroid hormone in that scenario. So we shouldn't just say that changing diet and lifestyle will be all that's needed. I think it it helps as a it complements the medical treatment. And so that's kind of the way I look at it. It's obviously complex. It's much more widespread than I think most people realize. But there are treatments and it seems like the treatments are easy to relatively easy to deal with. I'm sure people would prefer not to deal with them. With all of this in mind, what are the biggest misconceptions around thyroid conditions and and thyroid autoimmune diseases that people should really reassess when they're thinking about? Just one addition going back to the treatment. So I mentioned the hormone replacement for underactive, which is the most common autoimmune issue. Overactive thyroid is more complex. It's not as common. Usually it can be treated with a medicine to make the thyroid hormone normal. But it doesn't work in all cases. It can have some risks. Those medicines are called anti-thyroid medicine. And in those scenarios, either removing the thyroid surgery or radioiodine to destroy the thyroid are used. That's slightly more complex. Again, more chance of poor outcomes if not treated immediately. So that's the treatment there. Now, to your point uh, of misconceptions. So there's a few misconceptions I think the major one which I've kind of experienced or heard of is that, well, one is the thyroid support or iodine supplements will help. So if someone has normal thyroid functions, either they have no symptoms or they've had the testing done, it's normal, we should not really need to take excess iodine. Most of our diets have enough iodine in them. And I look at it as a benefit-risk. Something has little benefit but no risk, I think it's okay to do. Excess iodine, like in kelp supplements, just iodine supplements, some of those have also thyroid hormone in them. So we know that excess iodine can actually precipitate thyroid autoimmunity, as I said earlier. So if someone has maybe mild autoimmunity or none, they actually can develop a thyroid condition by trying to take a supplement to prevent it. Right, so that that's not good. Some of the supplements may have thyroid hormone in them. They are done either to help with weight or metabolism. We know that excess thyroid hormone will lead to some weight loss, but it mostly is muscle mass loss, and that's not good. And with time, it can start affecting our heart, just like overactive thyroid would. So, those are the reasons to not take a kind of a thyroid support or iodine supplement without talking to a medical professional. That's one. The other one, which I think alluded to a little bit earlier, is that can we manage thyroid hormone issues or autoimmunity by kind of supplements, lifestyle changes? And the answer is to a certain extent. So this, again, if 
depending on the hormone issue, someone has clearly over or underactive thyroid gland, which needs treatment, then I would say just doing the change in your lifestyle supplements is not going to cut it. So that's what I kind of counsel my patients as that we, we can kind of work together. If you need a medicine either to replace or control the hormone, we should do that. And in addition to that, to maybe prevent further worsening, we can think of healthier diet, maybe a selenium supplement, making sure you're getting enough iodine and not excess iodine, making sure you ruled out gluten issues and vitamin D issues and things like that. So those are, I think, I think the two main ones that I've kind of experienced and talked to patients with. And I've been a thyroid-focused endocrinologist in practice for about five years now, and I did a three-year fellowship prior to that, that if we explain to patients, friends, community members that are reasoning behind it and the benefits and risks, most people will not want to take a risk of something really bad just for like maybe something helping. So I think a lot of the misconceptions stem from like just not having enough information or maybe a health provider kind of dismissing the concerns without actually having a discussion. So some of my consultations, like if it's a clear bad hormone issue, sometimes those are easier to manage because Patients will be like, yeah, I have this issue, I'll treat it. The mild hormone issues are sometimes when we are not sure if someone has a thyroid issue. Those actually take more time because we want to actually have a full conversation and discuss all the benefits and risks of kind of other supplements or anything that the patient is taking or could be taking. Dr. Kotwal, this has all been great. I know we covered a lot of ground and we hit on a lot of topics. Hopefully the discussion we had here today will give people some additional information and insights on what the thyroid is, how it can impact your health, how it can impact autoimmune diseases, what people can do themselves to lower their risk of uh, developing one of these diseases. And in the event they do develop disease, what can be done? How do they work with their physicians to limit the impact and become healthy and get themselves on a path towards health? So again, Dr. Cotwell, thanks so much. Dr. Cotwell of the American Thyroid Association for spending some time with us here on What the Health. Thank you so much. It was my absolute pleasure. Before we move on, we want to again encourage listeners to take advantage of the hundreds of exclusive discounts WellWell offers on a range of health and wellness products and services. These cover everything from fitness and athletic equipment to dietary supplements, personal care products, organic foods and beverages, and more. Signing up is easy and free. Just visit us at wellwellusa.com, go to Milton's Discounts in the top menu bar, and the sign-up form will appear. Signing up will take just seconds, but the benefits can last for years. Okay, thyroid-related autoimmune diseases may not get a lot of play when it comes to everyday health issues, but that doesn't mean we should take them lightly. Tens of millions of people already are affected by these diseases, and these numbers are expected to rise going forward. So what's a reasonable approach to fighting back? Certainly, knowing the symptoms is a good place to start. And these include fatigue and sluggishness, sensitivity to cold or increased sensitivity to cold, increased sleeplessness, dry skin, constipation, muscle weakness, muscle aches, tenderness and stiffness, joint pain and stiffness, irregular or excessive menstrual bleeding, hair loss, and enlarged tongues. And these are just some of the symptoms. 
The challenge here, of course, is that these symptoms can indicate other problems as well. So if you're experiencing any or all of these, please make an appointment to see your doctor and get tested. If there is an issue, your medical professional is in the best position to prescribe a treatment. There is some uncertainty over how effective proactive measures can be at lowering the risk of getting one of these diseases. But certainly, reducing or quitting smoking will help, along with diagnosing and treating celiac disease, exploring selenium supplements, and easing up on soy. These are all good practices for a host of reasons that go beyond just thyroid issues. And as always, it's important to keep yourself informed. That's why we'd like to again thank Dr. Cotwall of the American Thyroid Association for his time and great insights on this episode. We'd also like to recommend visiting the association website at thyroid.org. That's thyroid.org. That's really easy. The group's website is loaded with essential information on these diseases and their treatments. Well, that's it for this episode of What the Health. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you'll come back and listen in again. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of What the Health. Looking for more feel-good news? Just visit our news site at wellwellusa.com and sign up for our weekly news blast. And if you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support our podcast, please share with others, post it on social media, or leave a rating and review. Until next time, keep yourself on that pathway to a healthier, happier you. Thank you.